Matthew chapter 3 is our primary text. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Before we begin this morning, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank thee for the word of God, which we have before us this morning in our very own hands. And the text that we are going to examine this morning, Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God will be pleased to illuminate our understanding so that we might be drawn closer to thy beloved Son, in whom thou art well pleased. Father, there are many things in this life that draw our attention, that steal our desires, but we pray that this morning somehow our desire might be drawn to him who loved us and gave himself for us. For we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. We have before us here the presentation of the most important and grandest person of the entire Bible, the very Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this text is pivotal to our understanding of the entire Gospel of Matthew. It is here that the reader is introduced to his Creator and to his Lord by his Heavenly Father. Only twice in the whole of the New Testament are the heavens opened, and the Father's voice is heard saying, This is my beloved Son. The first is in Matthew 3.17, and the other is in Matthew 17.5. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom... I am well pleased, hear ye him. It is a most frightening thing when the God of the universe speaks to mankind, and yet at the same time it is a most wonderful thing as well. It is frightening because the words he speaks must be heeded, and wonderful because God has given his creation a most important revelation of himself. God has a son in whom he is well pleased. And for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, we are going to be shown why this Jesus is the Son of God and why God the Father is so well pleased in him. And so for the moment, let's turn to our secondary text for this morning's message. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. 
when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward a hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. May God, the Holy Spirit, grant us the wisdom to understand this text before us this morning. I've entitled the message for this morning, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As soon as our Lord is presented as the beloved Son of God, he is led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. We are told that in Matthew 4, 1. No sooner anointed than attacked. Notice that Jesus did not seek temptation, but that he was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness. There is a time and a place for everything. And what a lesson there is here for us this morning. All who are called of God will also be tested to be proven that they be his. Those who waver and weaken may disprove the calling. And who better to test the claim than the greatest enemy and adversary of God, the devil himself? We read that the tempter came to Jesus after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Now that was a very long time to go without food. And although Jesus was sustained by his heavenly Father during those 40 days and 40 nights, when they were ended, Jesus was afterward and hungered. What a better time for the enemy to come. Our Lord was drained and dry by his long fast and was faint by his hunger. And though he was the very Son of God, yet he was also very man susceptible to the same hunger and thirst as we all are.
Verse 3, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. You see how cunning the adversary is, how subtly he adapts the temptation to the circumstances. He tempted a hungry man with bread. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Please notice the nature of this first temptation. Turn these stones, these rocks, in the desert into bread. He did not say, ask your Father who is in heaven to feed you, if you are really his Son. But he urged him to take things into his own hands and to turn these stones into bread. Did the devil actually think Jesus could do it? Why, of course he did. The devil's no fool. He knew who Christ was. He knew that this was the very Son of the living God come in the flesh. Why else would he tempt him in this manner? It is no temptation at all if the temptation were impossible. The devil can tempt us all he wants for us to change stones into bread or water into wine or things that we cannot possibly do, but it would be a waste of time for him since it is not possible for any mortal to do these things. What the devil urged Jesus to do was only possible for the Son of God himself to do. But what the devil wasn't sure of was whether he could coerce Jesus, who took upon himself now the likeness of man, to slip in his moment of weakness. After all, what is wrong with a little food to satisfy your hunger? There is no sin in that. But Jesus came to do the will of the Father, not the will of the Father of all lies. To succumb to the lust of the flesh would disprove the Father's claim, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus came, we are told in 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." And so our blessed Savior replies to the adversary, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Verse 4. Out flashed the sword of God. The Lord would use no other weapon. There is power in the word of God, which even the devil himself cannot resist or deny. And oh, how we need to take this to heart today, dearly beloved. The church is losing its power today because it's losing its ability to recognize the power of God's word and how to use it effectively. So many pulpits today have maligned the word of God, have changed the word of God, 
have replaced the word of God by man's word. It is no wonder then why there is no more power to change people's lives and triumph over sin. It is no wonder why Christian homes are falling apart and why false teachings and false religions are devouring our nations today. And may God forgive us for our callousness with his word. And so with that one simple verse, Jesus was telling the tempter that he would not distrust his father's ability to feed him nor his father's timing by taking things into his own hands. Verse 5. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Notice carefully how quickly the devil is able to adapt to circumstances. We are no longer in the desert. The scene has changed rapidly to the holy city, which is Jerusalem. It is, we are told, the devil that taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. Both the Lord Jesus and the devil are on a pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. What a significant place to be for this next temptation. Jerusalem and the temple there were the center of worship for Israel. It was a holy place, a place where the priests of God would meet with God. This was the place where sacrifices were to be offered for sins. And how ironic that the one responsible for introducing sin into a perfect garden in Eden is the same one now attempting to deceive the maker of heaven and earth upon his own designated place of worship. That serpent, that old dragon, was successful in the garden with his cunning device. Why not do it again? Perhaps it will work again with this one who claimed to be the Son of God. Has it not worked millions of times before with others? And so the tempter begins to twist the scriptures as he did in the garden with the woman. Verse 6. And he saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. If we turn to the Old Testament scriptures from which the devil quoted this passage, Psalm 91, verses 10 to 12, we will notice he has subtly removed some key words. 
In verse 10 of 91, Psalm 91, we read, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. That is what the devil removed, in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. You see, he has removed in all thy ways from the original verse in Psalm 91, 12. Much like all the new versions of the Bible do. But that omission is crucial to the correct interpretation of the text. He has destroyed the meaning of that scripture. The devil, by removing in all thy ways, has made the promise say what it never intended to say. We are to be kept in our ways, but not in our follies. Herein is a dire warning to the church. Never forget that the devil knows the scriptures better than any preacher, any teacher, or theologian who has ever lived. And when we think that we may take liberties with the word of God by leaving out words or adding to it, then we are prime candidates for deception. The word of God is never to be tampered with. For there are dire consequences for those who do so. But the tempter was dealing with the Creator Himself, who gave us the divinely inspired and divinely preserved scriptures in the first place. Verse 7 Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now these are very uh, the very same words which Jesus, as Jehovah God, gave to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Christ knew what the scripture said, and he took no pleasure in their being perverted. Again, the tempter adapts and changes his tactics. He now takes our Savior to an exceeding high mountain to show him all the kingdoms of the world which he promises to give into the hands of Jesus if he would fall down and worship him. O oh, wretched liar and deceiver! None of these kingdoms were ever rightfully his to begin with. They were the legal and rightful heritage of the Lord to whom he presented or pretended to give them. And though the devil deceived the nations and blinded their minds and caused them to war amongst themselves, at no time did any of them ever belong to him. What he had he usurped and stole, and thus had no right to offer to anyone these kingdoms as remuneration. And yet, how many souls have perished throughout the ages 
because this tempter, this deceiver, has offered them power and wealth which was never his to give. Countless millions of souls are lost today because they believed the father of all lies and turned their backs on the Holy One to pursue false hopes offered by the unholy one. But this one who was the Son of God could not be deceived. He could not be corrupted because in him was no sin. The scriptures tell us clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For he, that is God, hath made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And later on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, we read again about Christ, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And again in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, referring to Jesus, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. The consuming desire of the devil is to be worshipped as God. And how sad it is that even today, in our so-called educated and enlightened society, countless billions across this marvelous planet worship the father of all lives, thinking that they are worshiping the true God. He has subtly tailored thousands of different religions and false cults to suit every imaginable need. But when it is all over, all who have rejected the only Son of God in whom the Father alone is pleased will perish. For again it is written, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Oh, that we may never be so eager to gain the perishables that we fall prey to, the lies of the temper, tempter. Instead, let us be patient, willing to wait on the Lord and to allow him to bless us accordingly as he wills. And may the church never yield to the tempter's lies in setting up the kingdom of Christ in some more easy and expedient way than by the simple preaching of the gospel. Notice the Savior's final rebuke, verse 10. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. It is both a solemn and a stern rebuke to the fallen cherub, for that is how he is described in Ezekiel 28, 15, uh, 28 verse 14. It is a command of God that even the devil himself is bound to obey. For he too is under law to God, 
and cannot free himself from God's commandments. Our Lord again returns to the written word, referring to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, 13-15. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Oh, how sorely the chosen people of God had to learn this difficult lesson. The sin of idolatry brought great judgment and misery to the children of Israel when they went after other gods. Idolatry offends our God more grievously than anyone can possibly ever imagine. For that sin is a dual prong of offense. On the one hand, it robs God of his honor and glory, while on the other hand, it heaps praise and worship upon Satan. The most vile and wicked of all beings in this universe and the archenemy of our loving God. And oh, how carefully the church of God must be to flee from the sin of idolatry. For though God is long-suffering, and we be in the dispensation of grace, it is nonetheless a most grievous and dangerous state to enter into. For the scriptures clearly warn all who will hear in Revelations 21.8, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. For, says our Savior, it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Countless millions today have been deceived into serving a false god. They have encumbered themselves with religious teachings and customs and so-called good works, but are far from knowing Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world. And still countless other millions have fabricated a false Christ, a false gospel, and are led by a false spirit to the same destruction that awaits the devil. The final verse, Matthew 4:11. Then the devil leaveth him, and, behold, angels came and ministered unto him. We read that the enemy left him. But this would be only for a short time. The devil would try again another assault on the Son of God again. He would be much more villainous in his next and final attack. It would again be on another hill, a hill called Calvary. That too would be a complete and utter defeat for the tempter. 
And so as the devil departed, the holy angels came and ministered to Jesus, their creator. These ministering angels, no doubt, were hovering nearby, but dared not, without the Lord's express command, enter the scene where the battle was being fought. These holy beings, though longing to fulfill their ministry, yet would they not appear before the battle was ended, lest it should seem that they would have had any part in the victory. But when the devil was ended, when the duel was ended and the devil departed, they hastened to bring food, I believe, for the body and comfort for the mind of our blessed Savior. What a wonderful glimpse at our Savior. Even in his most weakened state, the devil was no match for him. But this was just the beginning. Jesus would now begin his public ministry. He had passed his first crucial test and was found to be perfect. He would go on from here being scrutinized and tested over and over again to see if there were any fault in him. He would be tested and tried by his own friends, by the religious leaders of Israel, by his disciples, by his own people, and finally by the Roman, Roman government of his day, as represented by Pilate, who, though he crucified Jesus, went on public record and cried, I find no fault in this man. Luke 23, 4. And so we come to the end of our message for this morning. But as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you this. Are you well pleased with Jesus, the Son of God? And if you are, do you honor him in obeying his commandments and telling others about him? And if not, why not? We are living in very perilous times today. It is an age of great apostasy. The churches who claim to be Christian are not all Christian churches just because they say they are or because they have a cross on their building. And many have been led astray by the false gospels they preach. It is also an age of great deception. Gone are the days that we would listen to the news on television or radio, or read it in the newspapers, and get a reasonably accurate account of the current events. Today, the mass media specializes in false narratives, promoting fear and panic and downright lies. It is also an age of lawlessness. Not only are the laws being broken by criminals and ordinary citizens, but now universally, elected governments themselves are ignoring constitutional rights and freedoms which our forefathers shed their blood to win for us. They, of course, are using this present crisis and this COVID-19 pandemic, which is now proven 
to have been man-made in a laboratory. They are using this to close down churches and pastors, fine Christians for going to church to worship God. And yet the Bible has foretold that such days would come. So here they are. How do we respond? Why we respond the same way as the saints of old did. They preached the word and lived for Christ, trusting God with their lives. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. That should be our assurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for this passage that so clearly demonstrates the perfection of our Savior. And Lord, we thank thee for the many assurances that thy word gives us that if we are in Christ, we have nothing to fear from man. Part us now with thy blessings, we pray, dear Lord, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee to bring us together again next Lord's Day around his table, for we ask it in his name and for his glory once again. Amen. Thank you.